Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, King David's Teachable Spirit and Penitent Heart. We're still in 2 Samuel 12, and we need to be pleading with God that we would come to understand this in a more personal and deeper way, for it is a life of repentance that a Christian is called to. King David's teachable spirit and penitent heart, contrasted with benign smiles, turned to savage snarls. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Classical Apologetics. And in that book, he writes an introduction, which is a remarkable book. He says that as long as we are willing to let the world be the world, the world is willing to let you be you. As long as we're willing to let the world be the world, the church is willing to let you be you. Sit on your little reservation, he calls it. Read your little Bible and sing your little songs. But if you step off the reservation and tell us what we should be doing and tell us about the one true living God who is a consuming fire, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then that benign smile, R.C. Sproul says, turns to a savage snarl. That's not only true for the world, it's true within the visible and invisible church. The church is filled with people who often have a benign smile when they hear the name Jesus. But God in his perfect wisdom and providences and mercy allows us again and again and again through his commands, by his nature and by his providences to look into our own souls and see if our heart's desire is to learn of him. If our heart's desire is to bow low and worship in every situation, or is the reality that our benign smiles are only there when things are going our way. And when we learn something of the nature of God that's different than us, or of his commands that require things of us or forbid things from us, or of his providences that are uncomfortable, does our benign smile turn to a savage snarl? Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? King David has had great blessings rain down upon him without measure. And in a fairly short order, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, lies about it, then realizes the lie is not going to work, and murders noble-minded Uriah. And God mercifully sends him the prophet Nathan, who tells him, God knows everything. Uriah means the Lord is light. 
You can't put out the light, Nathan is telling him. And David owns his sin. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. But he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and he named his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord, for the Lord's sake. Will you pray with me, please? God, each of us comes before you this morning just as desperate as King David with his child languishing and not yet dead. And yet most of us don't know it. The weakness of our flesh and the lure of this world and the machinations of the evil one are unending in this life. And we do long for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And we long to see that day when you, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under our feet. But so far, this does not appear to be that day. And if we continue tomorrow by your mercy, we will need a much better understanding of who you are, of the riches that we have in Christ, 
of the power in your Holy Spirit in, in his person and in his fellowship and of the high holy calling as both a child of God, a child of light, and an ambassador of Christ. Granteth now, Heavenly Father, a teachable spirit and cause us to learn that which is needful for the prospering of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I reminded you on several occasions the passage in Isaiah 55. You should know it well by now. It is in Isaiah 55 that the prophet says, As the heavens are high above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, and my ways above your ways, declares the Lord. It means that everything about God is radically different than you thought it was. Everything about God is radically different than you think, because our tendency is only to try to, all we can do is comprehend us. It's virtually impossible to comprehend such a remarkable being as God. And so he does reveal much of himself to us. He reveals himself to us in three ways. He reveals himself to us by his nature. He tells us what he himself is like. And it's mind-boggling what he's like. He's an awesome God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Ask anyone who has. And then he tells us about himself by his commands. And his commands are who he is. The Ten Commandments are written in stone because they are eternal like him. The Ten Commandments reflect the very nature of who God is. God is like that. And then he reveals himself to us in his providences in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect timing, in every situation that comes your way, whether it be a blessing or a challenge or a lesson, in his perfect providences, he tells us about himself. And we again and again and again deny the lessons. We learn about what his nature is like in the word of God, and then we say, well, he doesn't really mean that. And we learn about the commands that he has, and we say, he doesn't really mean that. And then we have these remarkable providences in our lives and we either ignore his hand in our blessing or grumble against him in our challenging circumstances. When you realize that God is moving in a direction different from yours, and that will be often, when you realize that God is moving in a direction different from yours, stop. Drink it in, embrace it, change your course, and run quickly in the new direction. And that is not what we see in much of the visible church today. The three areas I just mentioned to you are the nature of God, the commands of God, and the providences of God. We constantly reinterpret those to suit us rather than conform our understanding to embrace a God that is awesome and indescribable and that his ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are above the earth. God is Trinitarian in his nature and in the New Testament, the Pharisees in particular found that very troubling. They found that very troubling because he had already told them that he's one 
And now they're learning that he's actually three persons and one God. But they're not wanting to expand their understanding of who God is, but rather deny the ongoing revelation of God himself of who he is. We must not make that mistake. We must continue to swim in the Bible and then conform our understanding of the nature of God. In Exodus 33, Moses says he wants to see God's glory. And God says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And we have this erroneous idea that because of the incarnation, that's not true. We have this erroneous idea that because of the incarnation, that's not true. Because we think of people looking at the humanity of Christ and living. But in order to make it clear to us, Revelation chapter 1 says that when John sees the glorified Christ, he falls down like a dead man. We must come to learn the nature of God. And we must learn to embrace the nature of God and recognize that it's radically different than our own. He says to Moses at that same time in Exodus 33, he says, if you want to know who I am, here it is. I am who I am. I'm not like you. Become a student of me. I'm not like you. I am who I am. And when you begin to be a student of God, you find out that everything about him, as Francis Chan reminds us, everything about him is infinitely beyond our own version of that. His love is infinitely beyond our love. His holiness is infinitely beyond our holiness. His justice is unfathomable. His patience is incomprehensible. His wisdom is unquestionable. And yet we question it all the time. In puniness and foolishness. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches clearly that salvation is a rare jewel. And God himself could make salvation less rare if he chose to do so. God could this day convert every man, woman, and child on earth to the regenerative work of his Holy Spirit, melting their hearts from stone-cold flesh to living, vibrant faith in him. And he has not, and is not likely to do so. As he demonstrates his perfect justice in the damnation of the wicked and sets forth his unfathomable mercy and grace in the salvation of the elect. And you and I would not have thought of that. And God is like that. God is like that. And we must come to understand the great grace of grace and the awesomeness of God's wrath. God's commands are very clearly a concern for us as we not only must learn his nature, we must learn his commands, and we don't realize his commands, how deep and rich and broad they are. And even when we understand them, how we trample them underfoot, as did King David, who understood them as well as anyone we can imagine before the Bathsheba incident. And yet how quickly he trampled them under foot. Verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. David acknowledges, I have transgressed the commands of God. David openly embraces the rebuke by Nathan. God comes to him and sets him straight that he saw it and he hates it. And David owns it. We looked last week at Jeremiah 3. Only acknowledge your guilt. 
Jeremiah says in the opening chapters of his 40-year ministry. And yet today we all fall into the same pattern of Adam and Eve, a fear, flight, denial, and blame. Instead of acknowledging our guilt before God, he is a mercy-loving God, and David knows that. He knows there is no arguing with a God who is truth and who is perfect wisdom. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, please, we'll come back to that passage. Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, a remarkable chapter covering quite a bit, but in Romans 8, verse 22, we read a fairly familiar passage to many of us, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Many Christians erroneously believe that that then is past tense, but it isn't. The old nature continues to struggle against the new nature in those who are in Christ, and those who are in Christ continue to groan, verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We are longing, as Peter says, for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells, and the child of God sees the great dichotomy between himself and the holiness of God, and sees the ingratitude demonstrated in his life just like King David, and groans against it. The child of God groans. Look in your bulletin. On the back of your bulletin is Psalm 51 there again for you. David is groaning in regard to his sin. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. On the back page of your bulletin. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. How rare do you meet someone who understands that? How rare does your spouse demonstrate that? How rarely do your children demonstrate that? How rarely do your parents demonstrate that? How rarely do you demonstrate that? C.S. Lewis says all of us have a high standard and none of us meet our own standard. All of us have a high standard and none of us meet our own standard. But David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What's he saying? He's saying the banner over me is the publican standing off at a distance, unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but beating his breast, cries out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. David is groaning over that. Verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David is coming to that reality from the Westminster Catechism of the filthiness and the odiousness of his sins. Not just the consequences, but the filthiness and the odiousness of his sins. And so he asked God in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I need a new one. 
Sometimes you have an automobile accident, and they say this is totaled. Brothers and sisters, our sin totals our hearts every day. And we must call upon God in his mercies that are new every morning and ask for a new heart. I need a new heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You, you could. You'd be perfectly just if you did. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. I want to want to do what you want. Are you willing to surrender to God no matter what? If you disagree with God on an issue, would you still submit to him? That's what David is doing in the Psalms. David is wrestling in the Psalms. On occasion, David is arguing with God. And how remarkable is that, that our God would give us a script to argue with him who is a consuming fire. You disagree with me? Here's a holy script that you can actually cry out to me and complain. And David does that. He groans because he sees that incredible chasm between the way God is, the way God thinks, the way his commands are so beyond us and his providences are so vexing. And David groans. And then he bows low. And he worships. Turn back in your Bibles to Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Every couple here, married or hoping to be married, that should be on your bathroom mirror. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. What does that mean? It means when you see something good in your spouse. What a great opportunity to praise the Almighty. What a great opportunity. Seeing good in your spouse is a blessing from God because no good dwells in them. That is in my flesh, for the willing is present. But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil. Practice? The very evil that I do not want. Do you hear Paul groaning? Christians groan when they are confronted daily with the reality that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. Verse 20, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. What's he saying? He's saying moment by moment, day after day, week after week, year after year. The banner over my head is 
But the tax collector, standing far off, unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but beating his breast, cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Only acknowledge your guilt, says the prophet Jeremiah. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, groaning, who will set me free from the body of this death? Does that mark you? Are you marked by longing for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells? Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, hear this, young people. God will continue to work on you. Until you do. God will continue to work on you. Until you do see. The illusory nature of every bauble in this world. Until you do see the filthiness and the odiousness of your sins. Until you do see the wonder of his nature. And the perfections of who he is. And the sweetness of righteousness. And the perfect wisdom of his providences. He won't just let you go but he will continue to work on you. Who will set me free from this body of death? A Christian is ready to depart this world and to join God in eternal bliss, joining him unbridled in his most God-centeredness. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. I am longing for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. I was talking with Ryan the other day. We were talking, and it was always wonderful fellowshipping with him when they come. He, he was describing the world in two groups as young people, and then he said octogenarians, and he pointed to me. I pretended not to notice. <laughs> I would not for a moment trade places with anybody in this room younger than me. I would not for a moment, Trey, I've already been 13, 14. I've already been 25 or 30. But when I was 15 and 25 and 35, I did not realize the illusory nature of this world. And I struggled hard against the providences of God. And I didn't know his nature. But God has added more and more and more as I've walked through this world. And I'm looking forward to heaven and departing this world. I'm looking forward to it. I don't have a bucket list of things I need to accomplish before entering into the everlasting glory of the one true living God. King David, when confronted by the truth, the inescapable truth, acknowledges his guilt and humbles himself before God. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul writing to Timothy in something of a farewell manner as he, Paul, is departing this world, the end of the apostolic age, and things are turning over to the organized church as we understand it today with elders. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Why? Because our thoughts are not God's thoughts. 
Our ways are not God's ways. And when we hear God's ways and God's thoughts, we minimize them and compromise them. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. Stop dead in your tracks and stop thinking about somebody else you know when you hear that passage. But what part of the word of God or of the nature of God or of the providences of God are you wishing weren't so? Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. You can find them. You can find somebody who will preach a God just like you want. But it won't be true. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He says the same thing to Titus in chapter 1. When we read King David, we say yes and amen. We believe that really happened historically. We think it really did happen, and we would like that to be true of us in regard to owning our sin. But it is true. We don't own our sin. Or we don't do it very often. We don't understand the height and breadth and depth of our sin. Turning your Bible to Galatians chapter 5 again, we need to know this passage. You know what's remarkable about this passage is that if I said to you right now, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Most people here would know love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And those are great things. Preach to yourself and to plead with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, moment by moment. God, bring that fruit out in me. Bring that fruit out in me. But one of the things that we see over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture is be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 1 Peter 5, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be on the alert. What are the kinds of things that we need to be on the alert for? It's chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. There should be some groaning going on there. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh, here's the alert signal. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. Okay, we see the King David passage. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Idolatry, again, is not worshiping a silver idol. It's worshiping a Jesus that's not the biblical Jesus. Sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you realize that God is moving in a direction different from yours, stop, drink it in, embrace it, change your course and run quickly in the new direction. And that's what King David does in our passage this morning. I've told you before how much I love Pilgrim's Progress. I love it. You need to read it. You need to read it often. I've read it more than any other book other than the Bible. The first time I read it was in high school, and my high school teacher made fun of it. So I didn't have any comprehension of what it was. But then later, somebody else that I had high regard for told me, you should read Pilgrim's Progress. So I started reading. And the first time through it, it's a little challenging, but you can follow it. It's worth it. And they're modern translations now. But after they go through Vanity Fair and all kinds of things are happening, and they're not too far from the celestial city yet, Hopeful and Christian are walking on their way, and they meet a man named Talkative. And Talkative is reformed. I thought it was remarkable because there aren't that many reformed people in Pilgrim's Progress. Talkative is reformed. By the way, Hopeful and Christian are reformed. Target is reformed. He talks about the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the wonders of God's substitutionary atoning righteousness, the work of Christ. And Christian is impressed with that. He's impressed with how much talkative is read and how much he knows. And he turns to hopeful later on. He's been talking and walking with talkative. And then Christian, for a while, turns over and starts talking with Hopeful again. And he says, wow, this, this man really knows something. He says, no, he does not. He's from my hometown. And every time the word of God crosses his path, he goes another way. Every time the nature of God, the commands of God, the providences of God cross that man's path, he turns another way. And I learned for the first time in my life from John Bunyan that not everybody talking about heaven was going there, including those who could quote the Westminster Confession. It was a surprise and a shock to me. We must be on the alert and pleading with God for this teachable spirit of head, heart, and hands as we come to understand these things. The things of God are hard. In John chapter 6, it describes a situation which Jesus is talking about that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says that people stopped following him as a result of that. And he turned to the 12 disciples and he said, will you go also? And Peter speaks up and says that passage that some of you know, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. What you're saying, Lord Christ, is hard. The disciples are not saying, we get it. We get it. We're with you. They're saying, this is overwhelming stuff, but who are we going to go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. The things of God are hard stuff sometimes. But where else will you go? I am the Lord. That is my name. Beside me there is no other, says God. There is nobody else you can go to. Francis Chan tells us, if you've ever never heard his testimony, you should listen to it. Francis Chan is a modern preacher, has a church in San Francisco. His mother died 
giving birth to him. His mother died giving birth to him. His father remarried. His stepmother died when he was eight years old. His father remarried. His father died when he was 12 years old. Francis Chan said, I learned at 12 years old. I better figure this out. This is overwhelming. What is this world like? What is God like? That my mother would die giving birth to me. That my stepmother would die at eight. And that God would take my father at 12 years old. But he understood this. Where else will I go? Where else will I go? And so he took up his Bible. And he started reading. So that he might learn the nature of who God is. And learn the commands of who God is. And what God requires and what God forbids. There are the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And learn something of the wisdom of God's providences and timing. We ourselves must learn who God is. It's that challenging in our life. What's going on in this world? When providences don't make sense, the God of providence still does. David fasts and prays for seven days, and he's groaning for those seven days, thinking perhaps God might. But then in verse 20, the baby dies, and he gets up, and he washes, and he anoints himself, and changes his clothes, and he goes and he worships God. He joins God in God's most right, God-centeredness. He bows low and worships and recognizes what e'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. You can't sing that if you don't know anything about the nature of God, the commands of God, and the providences of God. But David did. David did. Then in our passage in 2 Samuel 12, we read in verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. He comforts others. Bathsheba has lost a son. And he comforts her. That God is still God. God is still good. Always has been. God is still perfectly wise and all-powerful and present and mercy-loving. And he comforts his wife. Husbands, hear that. As prophets and priests and governors in your home, he comforts his wife. And it says they have another baby. It's a little bit misleading there. It sounds like they have another baby in the next year. Solomon is the fourth son of Bathsheba. Solomon is the fourth son of Bathsheba. But in this passage here, it just simply mentions only Solomon, indicating that God is saying, this is the one I want the line to go through. I want Solomon to be the king after you. David has many, many, many sons before Solomon. So some time has passed here, as it's being described. And so they name him Solomon, which means his peace. Solomon literally means uh, shalom, peace, his peace. 
God is at peace. We're at peace with God. God's at peace with us. And then Jedediah. Jedediah is just a variation of the word David. It doesn't look like it in English. <laughs> it's a variation of David. It means beloved of the Lord. So there is, it's an encouraging time. David is comforting Bathsheba. What does the Bible tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, that we might be able to comfort others with the same comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. And David does that. He comforts his wife with the glorious truth of who God is. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. We don't have a service tonight, so you're getting extra this morning. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Daniel chapter 4. Turn to your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Comforting others, teaching others about what you've learned. That's the very essence of evangelism, of head and heart and hands. Not just some sterile truth about God. But that you yourself have walked with God. That you know who God is. And maybe it was a very difficult time for you. It was for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had everything going well for him. And the God of the universe came into his life. And clarified that Nebuchadnezzar, you're operating under a lot of misconceptions. Let me help you. Nebuchadnezzar, like you, would say, no, I got this. I'm okay. And God's like, no, you don't have this. In fact, you've got this about 180 degrees wrong. And so chapter 4 is about him learning the nature of who God is and the providences of God. But look how it starts. Look how it starts. Woe is me, verse 1. Woe is me because God has shown me who he is. Does your Bible say that? No, it doesn't. Listen to what King Nebuchadnezzar says as he begins this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar the king. It's a letter by Nebuchadnezzar to all 127 provinces of his great kingdom. Saying, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what God has done. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the people's nations and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And then he goes on and explains that he used to walk in pride and he used to think that he built Babylon. And God humbled him and said, no, you had really very little to do with it. I did it all. And then to make sure that it was written on his heart and not just on his mind, he has him lose his mind and lose his kingdom for seven years. And then God gives him his mind back. And then God gives him his kingdom back. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, wow, that was, uh, that was quite an experience. I was painfully wrong about God for a long time. But I won't make that mistake again, says Nebuchadnezzar. And he ends the letter. He ends the letter, chapter 4, verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. What is dominion? His rule. 
He's ruling over all his creatures and all their actions. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and that my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began to seek me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me like heaven, like going to heaven. It's going to be surpassing greatness compared to the seven years of groaning in this world. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. Learn the nature and the commands and the providences of God. And when you realize God is moving in a direction different from your stop, And drink it in and embrace it. Change your course and run in the direction of the Almighty because He will not leave you. He will cross your path again and again and again and again until you come to join Joachim Neander, whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. God literally has all the time in the world. What is the application of this? Here with King David, we see adultery and lying and murder and covetousness and ingratitude, and we see him learning from this and repenting bitterly and groaning over it with great godly sorrow. When confronted with clarity by Nathan, David does not add to his sentence his sin with unrepentance. He does not add to his sin with unrepentance, but repents. David does not have a benign smile that turns to a savage snarl, but he bows low and worships. Any area of nonconformity with the revealed nature of God, the commands of God, or the providences of God, is an application for us. As we read in the Word of God and we're asking God, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law, O Lord. Deliver me from idolatry. What is idolatry? Fashioning God in your image rather than finding out who He is and worshiping Him as He is. We need to join Him in His commands. Join Him in His providences knowing that he is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And like Francis Chan, we must recognize that whatever he's doing in our life, he's perfectly wise and attentive. He that watches over Israel slumbers not or sleeps. There are two wills of God, and I'll be done with this. Every time something happens in your life, you say, or somebody else says to you, is that the will of God? And Christians know to respond, well, which will of God are you talking about? Is it the moral will of God? The moral will of God is what we see in the Ten Commandments. It's what we see in the person of Jesus Christ. 
That's who God is. That's the moral will of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the commands made flesh. That's the moral will of God. But there's a second will of God. And it's whatsoever comes to pass. Was it the will of God that Francis Chan would lose his mother at birth? Yes. Was it the will of God that Francis Chan would lose his stepmother at eight? Yes. Was it the will of God that he would lose his father at twelve? Yes. Whatever my God ordains is right. God is ruling and reigning over all his creatures and all their actions. And Francis Chan's mother did not die while God was looking the other way. There's a moral will of God. And there's a decretive will of God. If it happened, it happened by God. And the Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, We Christians know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Will you pray with me, please? God, I think immediately of the parable of the sower and how much we need the seed that you do sow in the preaching of your word. We ask, God, in your mercy that you would not allow the devil to come and rob the seed that has been sown. That we would not turn aside from this holy hour to play golf or bathe in the sea, but to drink it in, to plead with you, to give us fuller and deeper understanding. And that, Lord, that we would not be overwhelmed with the challenges of this life and compromise your glorious eternal truths, but that the cares of this life would come and choke it out. Rather, God, that we would swim in the Bible and you, Holy Spirit, would continue that work that you have begun of conforming us, head and heart and hands, to the very image and likeness of your Son, Christ Jesus. God, we do pray that you would help us. But I pray in particular that you'd bless each one of us regarding application, that we would learn the nature of who you are and embrace it. That we would study your commands and delight in them as you, Holy Spirit, write them on our hearts. And that we would receive and embrace your providences. God, be glorified in us. Be glorified in our families and in our homes. Be glorified at River City and in southeastern North Carolina and, yes, even Chicago. God, we do pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. Amen. 
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.